Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you for listening to Depictions Media Radio. Welcome to Policy and Rights, the show about human rights and government policy. Okay, so we have um, upcoming uh, the WHO update um and uh, Dr. Tedros has invited a number of um, guests who, uh, who are health officials from different countries around the world about how each of their um, their countries and their ministries have dealt with uh, COVID-19 the measures that they have decided to put in place to help keep um, the number of cases down so that um, hospitals don't get overwhelmed and lives aren't put in any further danger than uh, than they need. Um, so why don't we give a listen to, to Dr. Tedros and his team at the WHO um, with today's media update. Goals. At this time, it's critically important that we all comply with health guidance. This is how we will break chains of transmission, suppress the virus, and protect health systems. Over the weekend, we saw that while many countries have brought COVID-19 under control, cases in some countries in Europe and North America continue to spike. This is another critical moment for action, another critical moment for leaders to step up, and another critical moment for people to come together for a common purpose. Seize the opportunity. It's not too late. We all have a role to play in suppressing transmission, and we have seen across the world that it's possible. We have released videos featuring multiple countries demonstrating their comprehensive responses to COVID-19. This includes New Zealand, Rwanda, Thailand, the Republic of Korea, Italy, and Spain. And today, a new video was released that highlighted Mongolia's success in responding to COVID-19. Mongolia has so far had no deaths or local transmission. And what Mongolia and all this story show is that there are shared lessons that we can all learn from. And we all have a role to play in suppressing transmission. In some countries, we're seeing cases go up exponentially and hospitals reach capacity. 
which causes a risk to patients and health workers alike. This is leaving health workers with difficult decisions to make on how to prioritize care for those that are sick. To understand more about how hospitals can prepare and cope with COVID-19, I'm pleased to be joined by three distinguished health specialists. First, I would like to introduce you to Professor Yae, Yae John Kim, who is joining us from the Republic of Korea, Korea to reflect on their experience tackling COVID-19. Professor, you have the floor. Thank you very much for the kind introduction, Dr. Tedros. I send you a warm wish that you stay healthy and be back to your office after an eventful quarantine. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's my privilege to share our experience with the COVID-19 outbreak in Korea. Uh, Korea has the first patient around January 20th, similar to other countries. And in February, March, we had the second highest number of COVID patients next to China in the world. But now we have a lower number of cases than many other countries. The first thing that I would like to mention about Korea's response with COVID-19 is the rapid PCR testing and rapid isolation during the initial large outbreak in Daegu area and the following outbreaks later on. Having experienced the MERS-CoV outbreak, uh, in 2015, we knew that setting up a PCR test and expanding the test capacity would be very important to investigate and also work on uh, any uh, outbreak situation. In fact, um, the PCR testing was available in many clinical laboratories of hospitals, including my hospital, um, around during the first week of February. And uh, in addition, to speed up the test uh, co sample collection um, with the limited test rooms, Korean physicians uh, developed an idea of drive-through test facilities, which is already published in the literature and many other countries also used that ideas. And we had a community treatment center for milder cases, and that was somewhat unique for Korean response to prevent any transmission in the community and also in the household. There are pros and cons in this community treatment center and we are continuing our discussion um, for these matters. And uh, secondly, the public hospitals. We have public hospitals and uh, private hospitals. And these public hospitals have been prepared for high-risk uh, communicable diseases for the past couple of years, especially since uh, before the MERS outbreak, but also strengthened since after the MERS outbreak. And this time, these hospitals were used, uh, utilized for COVID-19 patients. When the hospitals were filled with the patients um, and with the critical patients um, who could not be moved, uh, physicians from other hospitals and other cities volunteered to help the patient care. And in addition, when the hospitals uh, were saturated, uh, the private hospitals also took care of the patients when the uh, overflow occurred. And another important aspect of of this COVID-19 in Korea is the collective joint effort of um, the experts in the field with the health authorities, which we also ex exercised during the MERS outbreak as well. For the patient care side, we had um, 
clinical, central clinical uh, task force from the beginning to share the clinical knowledge and experience for the patient care. And for COVID-19 response side, we had a coalition of the response team in the field of infectious diseases, uh, infection control, laboratory medicine, clinical care, pulmonology, epidemiology, and et cetera, and all work together with the Korea CDC. Now, uh, Korea, CDC, Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency, now it's an agency. This health authority also shared the information uh, with the public on new, any new patient numbers and outbreak situation openly, and, and this updates uh, with a daily press release. The Korea CDC, uh, former Korea CDC, continued the epidemiologic investigation when other countries uh, um, discontinued the further investigation when they have a, a large outbreak. Whenever, however, we continue the epidemiological invest investigation when, whenever uh, there was an outbreak and whenever possible. And now we came to learn actually many more situations that can be linked to further outbreak. So that was also a lesson that we learned from uh, the various investigation we performed. And finally, most of all, the participation cooperation and compliance of the public, the community members of the nation was one of the most important aspects of COVID control in Korea. We encouraged wearing a mask from the early phase of the pandemic and avoid a mask gathering later on. However, we did not lock down the country or close the border, but only performed the variable degrees of social distancing according to the epidemiologic situation. <coughs> Although we had a second wave in um, Seoul metropolitan area mid-August and September, the outbreak was controlled uh, with the various collective efforts. Many Koreans remember the outbreak in 2015, and their mindsets are also changed since then, and know that public cooperation and compliance is important for the safety of everybody, and many followed guidance with positive acceptance. Now we are preparing for the winter, like any other countries, while the, uh, and the health authorities actually reorganizing the social distancing levels from three levels previously now to uh, five levels in the future. So we are trying to prepare ourselves with our best efforts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. And I would now, I would now like to hand over uh, to the Professor of uh, to Professor Mervyn Mer of University of Wits, South Africa. Professor Mer is also Director of Intensive Care at Charlotte Maxique in Johannesburg. Sir, you have the floor, and thank you so much for joining again. Precious thanks, Dr. Tedros, uh, for the very kind invitation. Uh, it's been a real privilege and pleasure to participate in this press conference. I'd also like to take this opportunity just to extend and pay tribute and homage to the wonderful healthcare workers around the globe who've really done amazing and, and committed work. From a South African perspective, we are a low middle income class country with a population of around about 60 million people. Uh, and there are huge discrepancies between the haves and the have nots. In fact, 55% of South Africans live on under $2 US dollars per day. We also have, as was alluded to in the earlier presentation, a public health care system as well as a private health care system. 
but 84% of the country's 60-odd million people are dependent on state health care. And in many areas, these are extremely resource-limited. And so I'm going to focus on some of the elements in our own institution, which served as the major referral hospital uh, in Johannesburg, uh, in terms of what we did and how we, in fact, prepared, and most importantly, many of the lessons uh, that were learnt that I think have been exceptionally useful for all of us. We first began to hear, as did the rest of the world, uh, what was going on in China in early January. And very shortly thereafter, we in fact got together a group of role players and had our first meeting. And so shortly after, uh, things were made public knowledge. And within the context of the first meeting, we'd already drawn up a protocol. Uh, that protocol over the ensuing months and, and, and weeks was subsequently refined and, in fact, widely rolled out. And uh, <clears throat> what we, in fact, realized at the time, and it was something that I felt quite strongly about with the preparation, and we had the benefit of several months versus individuals in China, the US, Europe, uh, and elsewhere before, in fact, our surge occurred. And so we really try to maximize, bearing in mind our resource limitation, everything that we feasibly could. And one of the things that we felt, and I certainly felt very strongly about, was that there were plans to put up field hospitals that has, as had happened elsewhere in the world. And I felt one of the most important things we could do was look at our own infrastructure, our own hospitals, and expand capacity within those to put into perspective, as someone speaking from an intensive care background, we have about 70 to 80 intensive care specialists in South Africa, half of whom don't practice intensive care. So we had 40 or less intensive care specialists to look after 60 odd million people, uh, a significant percentage and proportion of, of which who may effectively have required intensive care uh, facilities and care. And so within a short period of time, we partnered with various social responsibility partners, addressed the issues of ventilators, oxygen in the country, getting sufficient masks, making sure that in fact we could expand our existing capacity. And within no time, our own ICU capacity in Johannesburg was more than doubled. We also made sure we started a nursing upskill course that we could actually provide adequate care for the patients. And we made sure that human resources were extended a little so that even though we didn't have the specialist care, we could employ people who could often be trained quite readily to deliver appropriate intensive care in our institution. And in fact, what this effectively has done, we were able to do that within a few weeks. And so we have more than doubled our capacity as you may be aware, South Africa now ranks number 12 in terms of the most um, commonly affected countries. We were number four or five at one stage. And in my own hospital, at a, at a point in time, we had close to 400 patients in a packed ICU with this expanded facility. And so we felt that in the context of things, in fact, every challenge brings opportunity. 
And so we try to maximize the opportunity. And this ICU that we've created and expanded will exist beyond COVID. In fact, we were able to continue providing absolutely essential services for patients with non-COVID disease, very relevant in resource-limited settings like tuberculosis, HIV, ongoing surgical issues. And we made sure that we could maximize those and have an expanded facility. Additionally, with the preparation and some of the work actually done in our own institution many years ago, we took a leaf out of our own experience with varicella pneumonia. And many individuals who may be, in fact, online currently would know that, in fact, from our institution many years ago, 1998, there was a seminal publication that described the benefit of corticosteroids in critically ill patients with varicella pneumonia with massive reductions in mortality. And so very early on, we, in fact, in our armamentarium of appropriate supportive care, oxygen supportive care, appropriate fluids and so on, we added corticosteroids long before the recovery trial, in fact, became well known. And in fact, when compared to other uh, colleagues elsewhere in the country and elsewhere, in fact, our mortalities were dramatically different, despite the fact that we were dealing with a very similar severity of illness. And so we recognized that, as is often the terminology that's put out there, you can do more with, it, more with less. But what we did recognize, and I think a very important lesson to learn, is not to do less. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. For more. So don't expend and expand issues that are actually non-feasible. And so a huge amount was done by just a few for so very many. We also learnt most importantly, so the first issue was preparation. Second was that communication is absolutely pivotal. And at the outset, based on what was happening elsewhere in the world, there was massive fear, panic and anxiety. And we set up a daily, really effective debrief in the morning and in the evening where everyone in fact had a voice from every single healthcare worker. That was from the security people to the porters, to the nursing staff, to the medical staff, to everyone who had a role to play within the context of delivering care. And when we did this, we were able to overcome all sorts of issues, take decisive decisions, which were then very easily implementable and allow people to feel supported. And in fact, this made a massive difference at the outset, we had several healthcare workers that were infected. 
We initiated our own PPE training programs. And within no time, people who initially veered away from wanting to be involved with volunteering, were doing more with less, but not less for more. And so fabulous issues and everyone ultimately bought into this. We felt it was very relevant to maintain simplicity. In a country like South Africa, we have to rely inherently on clinical acumen. An excellent clinical acumen can make a massive difference. So in my opinion, being poor doesn't mean poor care. In fact, with creativity and initiative, in fact, excellence can be achieved. And so these were some of the lessons that we in fact learned along the way. We learned to be flexible based on what uh, was being shared abroad, had lots of interactions with colleagues abroad as well. And ultimately, in a nutshell, I think those elements allowed us to actually provide care that was equitable in a resource-limited setting with what was going on elsewhere in the world and in fact possibly have some outcomes that currently look as favorable, if not better, despite the resource limitations. And so I think I want to remind everyone out there that it's an absolute privilege to in fact be within this profession and we should never forget that. Another thing coming from Africa that I think we need to take out and share is what we call the spirit of Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is a very, very special word that means never forget to be compassionate and humane, both to patients and other healthcare workers. That went a massive way to making a huge, huge difference. And then finally, I had the fortune to grow up in a country where we were exposed to an individual of the magnitude of, of Nelson Mandela. And he was someone who, who taught all of us around the globe that we can overcome difficult situations, like the situation that we are dealing with, and that it doesn't matter how turbulent the scenario is, how difficult and how many obstacles we face. And something that stuck in my mind out of the many words of wisdom that he shared with all of us around the globe was a quotation that went something as follows. What counts in life is not the mere fact that we have lived. Rather, it is the difference that we have made to the lives of others that will determine the significance of the life that we lead. And if we take that, that particular element of wisdom out, we can all get through this. Nothing is impossible. In fact, I often try and turn the terms around and, and use the terminology, impossible is nothing. So I'd like to share some of those elements with you. Extend really gracious and humble thanks for this opportunity. Um, and really let everyone know out there that even in the most difficult scenarios, we can get on with things in a simple way. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. A huge amount can be achieved, and we, in fact, can change the lives of many individuals. Thank you so very much for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Professor Mer, for sharing your lessons from South Africa's COVID-19 response, Ubuntu. Uh, finally, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Marta Lado from uh, Spain. Uh, Dr. Lado was the Chief Medical Officer for Partners in Health in Sierra Leone 
and the senior clinical lead in the intensive care unit for COVID-19 at 34 Military Hospital in Freetown. Uh, Dr. Lado, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Pedros, for the introduction and for the invitation to be able to share some of the experiences that we have had in, in Sierra Leone in the last, uh, in the last months uh, with this pandemic of COVID. No? Like we, we have had a, our first case in Sierra Leone the 30th of March of 2020, and so far until today, which is more than six months, we have had like 2,366 cases. Uh, compared to other settings and other countries, definitely is quite a low number of cases. And it's not really related with low level of testing or because of not being able to acknowledge the infections that we have in the community. You know? Probably there are like a multifactorial system about like young age, the weather, probably cross immunity with other coronaviruses, and also some specific measures that I would like to bring up with all of the audience in terms of uh, being able to analyze how much our context in a low income a country like Sierra Leone can affect the way that we respond to things when maybe other middle of high or high income countries probably are struggling a little bit more. I want to remember everyone, uh, to remind everyone that we had like a very big outbreak of Ebola from 2014 until 16, and that it uh, killed and affected many of our population here in Sierra Leone, but also attacked deeply our healthcare system and made it even a little bit more weaker than it, what it was. So when all this COVID epidemic was going on all around the world and mainly Asia and moving into Europe and US, Sierra Leone was able to start putting in practice some of the things, some of the lessons learned during the Ebola outbreak that we lived in 2014-16. One of them is we were one of the few African countries like consider low-income countries that had five molecular lab functioning in the country. So that, that was meaning that we were able to do PCR testing, like real-time PCR, eh, to most of the different regions of the country, like the north, south, east, and west. And two of them were located mainly in the capital, where most of our cases of COVID happened. Another thing is the contact tracing. We had already developed like a very good system for contact tracing during Ebola about like one patient is affected being able to follow up all the relatives and all the close contacts having like a proper system of a 117 like a free hotline where people can call whenever they feel sick and they want to be tested or just to report any kind of infection around their environment and that has also definitely made a big difference in the way that we were able to to do contact tracing and surveillance in most of our our population. No? The third one was about like the IPC, no? IPC trainings, PPE, those were things that Sierra Leone was more than expert. No? Like I was here in Sierra Leone before Ebola, so I had the privilege and also the, the experience of living here or the outbreak of Ebola. And we spent a lot, a lot of time in doing IPC training how to wear the PPE, how to don and doff, etc. how to set up treatment centers, how to do isolation units, how to 
make sure that most of our staff are able to be protected when they are working so that we can reduce the hospital acquired infections. So these are things that we learned from Ebola and we all were aware that Ebola was not COVID, but definitely has made like a ground where we were able to start working in a more easy way and probably faster than many other countries that we were seeing around. The other thing was about like the lockdowns and the closure of the airport definitely had made like a big, like a big difference. And a, that has made like many new cases not being able to come inside of the country. So we were able to control our population. The reality is that we don't have much tourism as probably we, uh, we see in other African countries. So that means that most of our people that come inside of the country come for some kind of probably business or development work. So we were able to control with the closure of the airport and the lockdowns between different districts. We were able to control the movement of people. So we were able to identify cases in the capital and being able to follow them quite closely compared to probably other regions where they are not so used to be able to put these measures in place. And for, for all of us, one of the most important lessons learned, and, and this is what we are now trying to focus more and more, is uh, how we were able to develop like a critical care training for our healthcare staff. So before COVID, we only had one ICU in the country with only one intensivist for 7 million population. Uh, so that means that, uh, as you all may imagine, like the, the basic idea about monitoring patients, about vital signs, about being able to uh, control patients that are coming in shock, different types of shock, but also ventilation, oxygen. There are very, like only two hospitals in the country have pipe oxygen. So most of the oxygen administered in any regional or district hospital is through oxygen concentrators. And sometimes if you are lucky and you have an oxygen factory, some canisters that we can fill in. So as my colleague, Professor Mervyn was saying before, we try to do our best with the small, but we end up reaching and, 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 and getting many, many good outcomes. And that's what has happened in the country. From 2,300 cases, we only had 74 deaths so far. And also this means that we have been able to develop systems. We, have not, we don't have a specialist in, in ICU to be able to do much ventilation, at least mechanical ventilation. But we have overexpanded the use of CPAP the use of high flow oxygen. Um, we have been able to train a new generation of healthcare workers in how to manage critical cases, how to do um, like a good monitoring and close a care of patients with high dependency units. And in our case with 34 military, we have been able to set up from what it was uh, an Ebola treatment center with 30 beds we have transformed and transitioned it into 30 beds of ICU for COVID, where we work with oxygen concentrators of 5 liters, 10 liters, oxygen uh, canisters that we refill in our oxygen factories. But also we put CPAPs in patients that are coming with more severe respiratory uh, insufficiency and respiratory distress. So now being trying to get ready for the second wave, Right now, in the last days, we have not reported any case in the country, which 
should not give us too much confidence or complacent because we know that sometimes the waves come a little bit later. But what we can definitely say in Sierra Leone is Ebola taught us a big lesson about how to manage infectious diseases as well as other vertical programs like TB, HIV in terms of contact tracing, surveillance, etc., IPC and, and also PPE use. But now we need to get ready for the second wave, just being able to witness what is happening now in Europe, US in, and Asia, and trying to put our big improvement in the healthcare system and the capacity of the healthcare workers in managing critical care and trying to get as much um, operations and, and medical equipment available now that we have seen that with just like oxygen, aparins, steroids, and, and a good monitoring and a good high dependency unit with close monitoring of the patients, we are able to make most of our patients survive. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lado. And we're pleased that you have recently joined WHO and will be using your experience from Sierra Leone to drive our work uh, on clinical, on clinical uh, case management. Uh, muchas gracias. That caps uh, three amazing stories, and there are many lessons from the Republic of Korea, South Africa, and Sierra Leone that can help other countries suppress the virus, save lives, and protect health workers and hospitals. It really reinforces that while some countries are putting in place measures to ease the pressure on the health system, there is also now an opportunity to build stronger systems, ensuring quality testing, tracing, and treatment measures are implemented are all key. And we need countries to gain, to again invest in the basics so that measures can be lifted safely and governments can hopefully avoid having to take these measures again. On a macro level, this also reflects why a whole of government, whole of society approach to sustainable global preparedness is so important. Health systems and preparedness are not only an investment in the future, they are the foundation of our response today. Public health is more than medicine and science, and it's bigger than any individual. And there is hope that if we invest in health systems, health workers uh, and share tools uh, through the ACT Accelerator, we can bring this virus under control and go forward together to tackle other challenges of our time. We have to keep going and whether I'm at home or in the office, uh, WHO will keep working to drive forward science, solutions and solidarity. I thank you. Fadila, back to you. Thank you, Dr. Tedros, and thank you to our guests. Um, I will now open the floor to questions from uh, journalists. I remind you that you will need to raise your hand under the raise your hand function in order to get in the queue to ask your question. I would like now to invite Isabel Sacco from EFE, the Spanish news agency, to ask the first question. Isabel, can you hear me? Yes, uh, thank you, Fadela. Uh, good evening. Uh, I would like to ask uh, your comments on the protest in several parts of Europe against the COVID restrictions decided by governments. Do you see them as... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChambaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's a sign that people did not yet understand the gravity of the situation that we are living. Thank you. Um, yes, we, we've seen uh, many protests around the world uh, in association with the uh, with restrictions uh, from time to time. And clearly, uh, you know, people are uh, frustrated and they have every right to be frustrated and 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 uh, they're fatigued and they want, as we all do, to get back to our normal lives. Um, and every, people have every right to question uh, when uh, authorities indicate that certain measures need to be taken. We would prefer that to be seen as a dialogue between governments and communities so that we can reach a consensus on what needs to be done. Uh, it's really important that governments reach out to all levels of society to do that and have dialogue. Uh, sometimes governments have to act quickly, and in doing so, uh, it can cause uh, a reaction at the community level. Uh, communities have a right to process. It's a very important part of modern society. Uh, governments don't always get it right and, uh, and, and also need, like ourselves, to be, to be accountable for our activities. So protest is good as long as that protest is safe, that protest is managed in a way that it doesn't increase COVID risk. Uh, and obviously, we would hope that such protests would be civil, nonviolent, uh, and respect uh, the, 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 the basic uh, rule of law, uh, and that no other uh, civilians and others are drawn in. So yes, we support the idea of protest and the idea of speaking out. Uh, and we understand people's frustrations. But governments in Europe in particular at this time are facing a very, very difficult situation. You can argue how we've got into this situation, but you can't argue that the situation is serious. We need to push this virus down. We need to take the heat out of this epidemic right now in Europe. And governments have limited options right now in how to do that. Their options are limited. Their options may get easier if we get some success, but right now governments face very limited options. Uh, we would ask you to challenge, yes, your governments, but please support those decisions the governments make uh, that are really, I think, aimed at trying to protect populations, trying to help people, uh, and we hope that any measures that have been put in place are short-lived, are based on the epidemiologic need, uh, and are the least disruptive possible. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. I would like now to invite uh, Carmen Pawn from Politico to ask the next, next question. Carmen, can you hear me? Carmen? Can you please unmute yourself? Yes. 
Can you hear me well now? Very well. Go ahead, Carmen. Thank you so much for giving me the floor. I have a question for Professor um, Ye Jen about the flu season. Um, there have been concerns in many parts of the Northern Hemisphere about a so-called twindemic with flu and coronavirus. And I was wondering if she has any indication so far in South Korea about the numbers of the flu cases and how they compare to last year this time, or whether we're seeing a similar situation as in the Southern Hemisphere where you know, there were very few cases of flu because, because of the, of the um, precautionary measures taken against, um, against the coronavirus. And if I may, also a question on, um, for, for uh, probably uh, Dr. Chedros about um, the U.S. funding for the WHO. I was wondering if there's been any sort of like assessment so far on how the freezing of funds from the U.S. side will impact the work of the WHO. Now, I also take this opportunity to wish Dr. Chedros um, the best, and hopefully, he will he will feel well and, and be able to get out of quarantine soon. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. I would like to invite uh, Professor Kim. Uh, I know it's very late uh, in her country, but you are still with us. Do you mind taking this question, please? Sure. Um, so at the moment, um, we have not started at the typical flu season yet, although we are entering and we are vaccinating people for the preparation for winter. Typically, we see the flu, flu, flu patient, you know, probably in sometime in November and we see increasing number of patients in December and January, typically in Korea in the past. So we do not know whether we will have the similar situation like in the Southern Hemisphere during the summertime, they have a low number of cases. However, we are trying to do our best to prepare the population with um, vaccination at the moment. So at the moment, we do not see any signs of a significant increase of a influenza in the community. Thank you, Professor Kim. Um, Dr. Maria von Berkow would like to add something. Yes, thank you. And, and hello, Dr. Kim. It's really nice to see you on the screen. Um, and thank you for, for joining us today. Dr. Kim and I know each other for, for a few years now uh, based on our experiences together with, uh, with MERS coronavirus. And I'm very grateful that um, Korea has, has really demonstrated uh, lessons learned um, from experience with MERS in 2015. So thank you, Dr. Kim, and for all of this, the speakers today. Um, so just to, just to highlight the, the question around influenza and the influenza season uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. So as we are beginning the season here in the Northern Hemisphere, there are surveillance systems that are in place um, to be able to test, uh, to see which uh, influenza viruses are circulating. Um, those, those systems are strong. We need to make sure that in countries in the Northern Hemisphere, we are still testing for influenza as well as testing for COVID-19. Um, the restrictions that are in place for COVID-19 will be beneficial for influenza, um, but we don't know yet um, how the influenza season will unfold. Um, the good news for influenza is that we can be prepared for this, and we are preparing for this. There is a vaccine um, that is rolling out for influenza, um, and we, we strongly urge um, those in the at-risk groups to make sure that they get vaccine, uh, vaccinated this year. Um, and there is also substantial work underway around making sure that patients enter the right clinical care pathway as they enter the, the public health system. And Dr. Diaz is here who can, who can comment a little bit more on that because it is important uh, the type of care that individuals receive depending on if they have COVID-19 or if they have influenza. 
Um, so it will be difficult to distinguish what an individual has in terms of their symptoms because the signs and symptoms are very similar. Um, so entering that clinical care pathway early and making sure that patients receive the care that they need uh, will, will save lives. Um, Janet? Thank you. Um, and this is a very uh, important um, question and also important to be uh, prepared and ready. I think as you start to think about influenza coming into the community, um, obviously the surveillance is key, uh, recognizing when influenza starts to circulate or is circulating in the community. So you put it on, the clinicians have to put it on their differential diagnosis when evaluating someone with an acute respiratory infection. We do know that the symptoms are uh, common in, uh, that both diseases do have common symptoms, but we do know some differences. And one of the differences I think I wanted to highlight is that those are at risk for influenza include there are some overlapping risks, uh, risk for severe disease, but then there are, there are some that are more unique to influenza. So young children are at increased risk for severe disease with influenza, and one must remember that. The second one is pregnant women. Pregnant women are at risk for severe disease with influenza, and so you have to remember that, including up to postpartum two weeks. So those are two groups that are not, we are not seeing severe disease in COVID-19, but so, so, so that is clear. So when you're starting to see influenza circulating, don't forget that. So if someone with an acute respiratory infection and you suspect influenza is in the differential and they're a young child or they're pregnant, then that patient actually does need to be tested. And why do we test for influenza? We test for influenza because we do have uh, antivirals that work for influenza. So right now, the WHO is soon to publish their, uh, our guidance on influenza. Um, and, but we do know that there are antivirals, such as oseltamivir, that uh, if you give to patients who are at risk or with severe disease, does reduce mortality. And so that is our recommendation. So we have an antiviral that would be used for patients that are either at risk or with severe disease for influenza, and that is a different than what we know for COVID-19. Again, uh, there's another difference perhaps is, is the use of, you know, corticosteroids. You know, so corticosteroids right now for the, for the treatment of COVID-19, we you know it reduces mortality in patients with severe and critical COVID-19. But the risk of corticosteroids in influenza, there has been some concern that that can actually increase viral replication. So the same data doesn't exist for that. So I think what's important now is to, one, is to understand when it starts to circulate in the community. Two, to put it on your differential diagnosis. Know the differences in severity. Know the differences in uh, treatment pathways. But then there's some other commonalities. If the patients with influenza or COVID-19 develop severe pneumonia, need oxygen therapy, need intensive care, then the best practices are the best practices. Good supportive care, good patient monitoring, safe practices in intensive care unit, appropriate application of IPC within the healthcare setting in order to um, you know, prevent any nosocomial transmission. So then there are those commonalities. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Diaz. I would like now to invite Emma Farge from Reuters to ask the next question. Emma, can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, good afternoon. My question is for Dr. Tedros, please. Um, it's regarding your quarantine. Can you give any indication of whether the COVID-19 positive person you're in touch with is from within the WHO? And if so, is there a cluster of transmission within the agency and, and how big is it? Um, and more broadly, can you comment on whether this encounter is affecting the operations at headquarters? Will you be testing staff or potentially even closing headquarters? What is the plan? Thank you very much. 
Um, I'll take the, the first part that the DG may wish to comment, but just to reassure you that our staff health and welfare uh, program under the leadership of Dr. Caroline Cross and, and uh, um, Raoul Thomas, the head of business operations, have had in place a very extensive uh, case detection and contact tracing system covering our staff since the very beginning uh, of this uh, epidemic. Uh, and uh, we have had uh, a number of cases through that time. Most cases have been acquired at community level, um, very few uh, within within the building here, but uh, we've been very vigilant in, in maintaining, uh, number one, reducing the footprint of staff in the office, moving very much to teleworking, uh, all of the things you've seen elsewhere, hand washing stations, limitations on the number of people per office, limitations in meeting rooms, the, the wearing of masks um, in open spaces and, and many other initiatives that have been incrementally added in order to manage the risks uh, to our staff, both in the building and the community. And remember, we're part of a community here at WHO too, both on the Swiss side of the border and the French side of the border. Our staff live in the community, their children go to local schools, we, we shop. Uh, we pray, we do all the other things that people want to do. So we are part of that community and we're subject to the same risks that exist in those communities. And the staff have been very, very vigilant in, in implementing uh, those measures. We have temperature checks on arrival in the building, self-declaration uh, of health status every single day for all staff members and an immediate response mechanism should someone become ill at home or become ill at the office. I'll pass to Maria maybe for some of the, the detail, um, but just to assure you that we, like any uh, building and any organization, both here at our regional offices and our country offices, have in place uh, strong and robust risk management mechanisms in order to reduce transmission within the building and to manage that transmission should it occur. This is not a zero risk situation. We've said it again and again. There is no environment right now in the world that is without risk. We believe we have put in place appropriate and robust risk management measures that balance the risks of the disease against our need to provide the services that we must provide to our member states and the world. Maria? I think only to add that, you know, we're an organization just like everyone else, uh, you know, in the world trying to work this out and how we keep our staff safe and how we have the systems in place uh, within the building, but also making sure that everybody takes the steps that they need to take throughout the day. Uh, we're all uh, everyday people as well, and we live in homes and apartments, and we have to grocery shop, and we have to take our kids to the doctors and all of that. So everything that we have put in place, everything that we are recommending to the world, we are putting
Okay, so um, living here in, in British Columbia, that we have noticed that um, the here and across Canada that the numbers are on the rise for um, the number of cases of COVID-19. We do need to do what we can to ensure that those numbers do not keep rising because it's not only about uh, COVID-19, but it's also about um, other health conditions that uh, will be on the rise if we do not keep the numbers for, of COVID-19 down. Um, there are um, other, other health conditions, cancers, um, surgeries, and other things that cannot happen if the numbers for COVID-19 keep rising. So um, we do need to take all the precautions we can and do what our health officials are asking of us. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Policy and Rights here on Depictions Media, and my name is Michael. So if you see the subscribe button in your screen, please do make sure you subscribe to us so you can get continued updates on what is going on um, in our world. Thank you. This show has been produced by Depictions Media. Please contact us at depictions.media for more information.